Music is an important trigger for nostalgia. If you're in your mid-twenties, perhaps this song affects someone like you. Never mind, I'll find someone like you. I wish nothing but the best of you. Or if you're in your mid-forties, this might do it for you. You know it's true Everything I do oh, I do it for you If you're in your mid-sixties, maybe this is a bridge to your past. One thing's for sure, nostalgia isn't what it used to be. Teenagers share music with each other. It's part of group bonding. That's the time in your life when you develop your identity. Rapid neurological development occurs in the teenage brain, and teenage experiences become hardwired into the brain. The growth hormones of puberty indicate to our brains that everything at that time is important including the music that we hear. The word nostalgia is derived from two Greek words, nostos, meaning homecoming, and algos, meaning distress, nostalgia. That term, nostalgia, is a late 17th century coinage which described the homesickness felt by Swiss mercenaries. Most evidently, Nostalgia among Swiss mercenaries could be brought on by hearing a folk song that reminded them of home. Less obviously, perhaps, nostalgia could be brought on by observing the changing of the seasons, say, falling leaves in autumn, which reminded the mercenaries of their impermanence. The word nostalgia was first published by the Swiss physician Johannes Hoffer in 1688. Dr. Hoffer classified nostalgia as a disorder of the imagination. Old definitions of nostalgia tend to reference homesickness, as, for instance, a form of melancholia caused by prolonged absence from one's home or country. However, nostalgia has subsequently been demedicalized, and these days is classified not as a disease, but as an emotion. Nowadays, we see nostalgia as a sentimental longing or wistful affection for a period in the past, or a feeling of pleasure and also slight sadness when you think about things in the past. Here's something that makes me nostalgic. The opening of the Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis by Rafe Vaughan Williams. Vaughan Williams's Tallis Fantasia was premiered 111 years ago in Gloucester Cathedral at the Three Choirs Festival. I personally don't have a specific affinity with Gloucester's glorious Romanesque and Gothic cathedral, or indeed with the three centuries old Three Choirs Festival but I do think that the opening of Vaughan Williams's Fantasia promotes a peculiarly English nostalgia. Looking at the score there, the top four staves are for string quartet. Beneath that, the next six staves are for one string orchestra and the lowest five lines for a second string orchestra. I'm fascinated by musical notation and its part in allowing performers to make music. The thing about this score is that the notes on the page communicate so little of the ultimate sound of the music. 
It looks so normal, so unmagical. Unless, like Vaughan Williams, you happen to have a special ear for texture, which Vaughan Williams had clearly developed by his late 30s. His ear for texture was no doubt helped by three months of recent and intensive study with Maurice Ravel in France. And nostalgia is certainly promoted by the orchestration of that opening chord. The chord is G major. It's spaced over five whole octaves, but there are no notes in the second octave down. The upper middle notes aren't there. In terms of the body of sound, the chest is missing. This contributes to the static yet unsettling nature of the chord. In 1904, Vaughan Williams had been engaged as musical editor of the English hymnal. With increasing nostalgia for his British heritage, Vaughan Williams set about collecting folk songs and other old tunes, and the project, which should have taken a few weeks, became a two-year labour of love. Here's one of the songs that Vaughan Williams encountered in his search. You're looking at a metrical version of Psalm 2. In the Book of Common Prayer, as, for instance, set by Handel in Messiah, Psalm 2 runs, Why do the heathen so furiously rage together, and why do the people imagine a vain thing? Three decades later, in 1567, Psalm 2 was rendered poetically by Archbishop Parker, as you see it here. Why fumeth in sight, the Gentiles spite, in fury raging stout. Why taketh in hand the people fond vain things to bring about? The 16th century composer Thomas Tallis set Archbishop Parker's words to a tune that Tallis himself described as raging and braying in order to communicate the fury and rage of the opening of Psalm 2. So, in his Talis Fantasia, after its magical opening, Vaughan Williams continues to lay nostalgia on with a trowel. First, with a high-held note with no meter, which stretches time. Then he takes that Talis psalm tune, slows it down, and gives it to plucked instruments. Think lyres and harps of Old Testament psalms. And the quiet plucked tune is punctuated by parallel motion in the bowed strings. Parallel motion suggests medieval organum, the simplest form of which comprised consecutive parallel intervals. So stretching time with a held note, quietly plucking Talis's tune and answering that with antique referencing parallel intervals, it's all about cultural nostalgia. After the premiere of Vaughan Williams's Talis Fantasia, the young composers Herbert Howells and Ivor Gurney spent the night walking the streets of Gloucester because their imaginations had been so fired by the piece. Reflection is the first draft of nostalgia. Here's another G chord in wide spacing, this time G minor.
The opening of Pink Floyd's concept album, Wish You Were Here, recorded over several tortuous months in 1975. It was Pink Floyd's next album after Dark Side of the Moon. The opening song, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, is a tribute to former band member and frontman Sid Barrett, who had left Pink Floyd seven years earlier, a troubled soul with serious mental health issues. Hence the album's title, Wish You Were Here. Static harmony, that G minor chord remains there for two and a quarter minutes. The long-held chord stretches time back into the past, and it's an unusual thing to do in rock music, even in prog rock, and that wide G chord tells you that something special is going on. Whether bassist Roger Waters, who composed the album, had heard Vaughan Williams's Talis Fantasia isn't clear, but Pink Floyd certainly knew about instrumental textures and how to create purely instrumental effects without lyrics. Within common practice, that's to say classical music, one of the more binding links with the past is the chorale, a German hymn, if you like. In the same way that Vaughan Williams and the English hymnal used folk songs as hymn tunes, 400 years earlier, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther had done a similar thing. Luther took German secular songs and turned them into chorales. Why should the devil have all the best tunes, Luther said. And these chorales became central to the Austro-German musical tradition in particular. As a teenage violinist, when I first played Brahms' first symphony, I remember being puzzled, though orally fascinated, by a chorale just turning up in the introduction to the last movement. At the time, it seemed wonderful, but random. But then, at the age of 15, I wasn't yet the music history nerd that I've become. Here's how this invented chorale presumably emerged in Brahms's head as an organ texture. And so, in imitation of that organ texture, in the symphony, the chorale is first heard on trombones and bassoons. Lutheran nostalgia in Brahms's first symphony. But in the opening movements of the finale of Brahms's first symphony, there are three nostalgic references in three minutes. First, that chorale. Secondly, a nostalgic reference to regional music and the natural world. Here's a postcard sent from the Alps. Brahms sent this card to Clara Schumann, the unrequited love of his life, on the 12th of September, 1868, the eve of Clara's 49th birthday. Brahms and Clara loved that part of the world, the Alps near Lucerne. Visiting those mountains filled Brahms with nostalgia. Here's a transcription of the postcard to make things a little clearer. At the top, thus blew the Alphorn today. 
And then Brahms added words to his imagined Alphorn melody. From high on the mountain and deep in the valley, I greet you a thousandfold. Here's how that Alphorn theme appears in Brahms' first symphony, both before and after the chorale. Chorale and an Alphorn theme, which leads into the big tune of the finale of Brahms's first symphony. And that big tune itself is impressively nostalgic. Late 19th century composers, particularly German composers, put Beethoven's music on a pedestal. Respect and nostalgia in equal measure. And the big theme of the finale of Brahms's first symphony is wholly reminiscent of Beethoven. When Brahms was challenged with the obvious, it sounds like Beethoven jibe, Brahms dismissively replied, any ass can see that. three very different nostalgic gestures within three minutes of the same Brahms symphony. The natural world, Germany's Protestant musical heritage, and the Austro-German symphonic tradition. Nostalgia is a mixture of the cerebral and the visceral, so music is a perfect medium for nostalgia, being both cerebral and visceral. Nostalgia is also a mixture of bitterness and sweetness, again, perfect for music, which, particularly since Mozart's day, has been able to communicate different emotions simultaneously in the hands of the canny composer. American Beauty, a film of 1999, has nostalgic subject matter. The film depicts a dead man talking about his midlife crisis when he was alive. The composer of the score of American Beauty is Thomas Newman. The time shift that suggests the dead man looking back on his life is initially portrayed by Newman's score as a long-held interval. And like our early examples of Vaughan Williams and Pink Floyd, at key moments, any clear rhythmic meter is consciously avoided, partly by proceeding very slowly. Also in American Beauty, Parallel motion, reminiscent of the old technique of medieval organum, is present in the left hand of the piano. It takes us back in time. In an age where put a beat behind it is so often the main musical device, to have no meter is one comprehensive way of de-modernizing things, looking backwards, promoting a feeling of nostalgia. So the cue, any other name in American Beauty, begins with a long-held interval and then the parallel movement in the left hand of the piano follows.
Thomas Newman's iconic score didn't actually collect one of the film's five Oscars, but the score did win a BAFTA. Here's another example where the subject matter is itself nostalgic and the music reflects that nostalgia. Debussy's Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn is a symphonic poem lasting around 10 minutes. Afternoon of a Fawn is based on a poem by the French symbolist poet Stéphane Mallarmé. Mallarmé's poem describes a fawn playing his panpipes. The fawn is allured by passing nymphs and then abandons himself to sleep filled with visions. The poem is all about longing and nostalgia. Now, Mallarmé didn't want his poem to become the basis for a piece of music, but having heard a performance, Mallarmé wrote to Debussy that Debussy's piece, quote, presents no dissonance with my text, but goes much further, really, into nostalgia. In other words, music is even better than poetry at evoking nostalgia. Here's the end of Debussy's Afternoon of a Fawn, where two French horns and the second violins recall the opening of the piece, an instance of micro-nostalgia in itself. And now, by using harmonic parallel motion, that gives an antique effect which promotes longer-term nostalgia. Although bubbling up for many years, in the early 20th century, the early music pioneers set about their business in earnest. In England, there was a renewed interest in the music of the Golden Age, essentially the long 16th century. In league with those pioneers was composer, critic and writer Peter Warlock, who developed an affinity for Renaissance music, not just English, but French too. Warlock's Capriol Suite was based on music published within a French dance manual, Orchestography of 1589. Choreography, as we might now call this treatise, outlines the five ballet positions for the first time and proposes the beginnings of dance notation. For Peter Warlock, this French dance treatise conjured up nostalgia for a colourful previous age. Here's a song for four voices. Along the top, superior, soprano, if you will, then contratenor, alto, if you will, beneath that, the tenor part, and beneath that, bassus, bass. Belle qui tient ma vie is the title of one of the dances in that French treatise, orchestrography. In English, beauty who holds my life captive in your eyes, who makes my soul glad with a gracious smile, come soon to rescue me, or I'll need to die. In the Capriol Suite, these late Renaissance dances are heard through Peter Warlock's interwar ears and given a new lease of 20th century life, but always with a nostalgic eye on the past. It would have been easy as a troubled individual in the 1920s to assume that life in the 16th century had been simultaneously more colourful and culturally more secure. This is Warlock's take on the late 16th century.
reserved 1920s nostalgia made all the more retrospectively poignant by Warlock taking his own life four years later at the age of 36. Igor Stravinsky created Havoc in Paris in the early 20th century, and specifically with his ballet The Rite of Spring, premiered in 1913. You can experience a full and authoritative account of the contents and effect of this ballet on the Gresham College website in a lecture given in January 2020 by our Gresham Professor of Music, Marina Frolova-Walker. The lecture is called The Rite of Spring, A Failure and a Triumph, and it's not to be missed. But for now, you'll have to make do with me reminding you that The Rite of Spring was based on Lithuanian folk melodies in an attempt to conjure up scenes of ancient Russia. So Stravinsky's modernist Rite of Spring is about the past and was subtitled Pictures of Pagan Russia. One of the Lithuanian folk tunes that Stravinsky used was Tu Manu Cesarele, You, my sister, you, little swan. If you want to have hardship, then marry a serf. This Lithuanian folk song begins the rite of spring high up on a bassoon with some subtle added harmony to bring it into the 20th century. Pictures of ancient Russia through nostalgic early 20th century eyes. Indeed, the Rite of Spring channels nostalgia, sometimes positively, sometimes less so. In the years following the Rite of Spring, Stravinsky turned to neoclassicism. Stravinsky dressed up styles of earlier music in 20th century clothing. That earlier music could be Bach, or it might be Mozart, but in his ballet, The Fairy's Kiss, Stravinsky paid homage to his Russian antecedent, Tchaikovsky. Stravinsky writing nostalgic Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky died when Stravinsky was 11 years old, but not before Stravinsky had heard Tchaikovsky conducting his last symphony. However, it seems that Tchaikovsky and Stravinsky never actually met face to face, but reality is no bar to nostalgia. Here's another couple of composers who never met. They may never have met, but Stephen Sondheim on the left has been influenced over a lifetime by the music of Maurice Ravel on the right. Ravel's influence on Sondheim is nowhere more obvious than in the 1974 French film Stavisky, for which Sondheim composed the score.
I was fortunate enough to interview Stephen Sondheim some years ago in the garden of his home in New England. I put it to him as gently as I could that the music of early 20th century France had had a significant influence on him. In the manner of Brahms's riposte that any ass could see that his first symphony was heavily influenced by Beethoven, Sondheim more wittily but equally honestly replied, yeah, Ravel should get royalties. Here's a piano piece by Frédéric Chopin, one which many intermediate pianists would have played advisedly or not. In 1970, Barry Manilow wrote a song called Could It Be Magic? After revision and further remixing, it became one of his earliest hits. Some years later, Manilow spoke about the genesis of Could It Be Magic? I wrote it after a glass of wine, Manilow said, and I thought I'd come up with the coolest batch of chords in my composing experience. Then I realized that before I'd had that glass of wine, I'd been playing my Chopin preludes. And there was that prelude in C minor going through my head. So I wrote the song around the prelude in C minor. It's a remarkably successful contrafactum, if that's the right term. What's most impressive is that it embraces both ballad and rock. In the short extract you'll hear now, it moves from nostalgic ballad to rock song at the point where the drums enter. Seventy years before Barry Manilow got his nostalgic hands on Chopin, the Russian pianist and composer Sergei Rachmaninoff wrote an entire set of variations based on Chopin's C minor prelude. The twelfth variation of Rachmaninoff's set is particularly beguiling since it sees a meta-nostalgic hankering. First, of Chopin's prelude itself, and secondly, of the counterpoint of Johann Sebastian Bach. In this 12th variation, Rachmaninoff takes the melody of Chopin's prelude and turns it into Bachian pastiche, but pastiche of the most beguiling and economical kind. This is an extremely touching piece of nostalgic respect from an early middle-aged Russian pianist for the music of a deceased Polish pianist and a long-dead German organist. dual nostalgia for the 19th and 18th centuries through the lens of the opening of the 20th century. The music of the golden age of Hollywood breathed the entirely nostalgic air of classical music, as was acknowledged in the mid-1950s by the Russian-born American film composer Dmitry Tiomkin, 
when he went to accept his Oscar for the score of The High and the Mighty. Chomkin didn't thank his family, or his manager, or the film's director, or the orchestra, or even the film's star, John Wayne. No, Chomkin, in a disarmingly self-aware speech, accepted the award on behalf of a load of dead composers. One of the unsuccessful nominees for the Oscar that year was the composer Franz Waxman. After the ceremony, Waxman criticised Dmitry Tionkin for his insincere acceptance speech. Tionkin acidly responded to Waxman, I don't know why you're so annoyed, Franz. I don't hear any influences of those great composers in your music. <laughs> and so, I'll get to the point. The reminiscence bump is the tendency for people over 40 to have increased or enhanced recollection of events that occurred during adolescence and early adulthood. This was pointed out by the late Professor Alan Parkin of the University of Sussex in 1996 in the paper, Things That Go Bump In Your Life. In 2018, Seth Stevens Davidovitz analyzed data from the streaming service Spotify and published his conclusions in the New York Times. Stevens Davidovitz worked out that people have particular affinity for songs that were released when they were young teenagers. Specifically, 11 to 14 years old for a girl and 13 to 16 years old for a boy. Even more specifically, the average age for the reminiscence bump is 13 years old for girls and 14 years old for boys. Calling all 60-year-old males our reminiscence bump is apparently the year 1975, and I was initially sceptical. And yet, my favourite album is A Trick of the Tale by Genesis, released, yes, in 1975. My other favourite I mentioned near the start of this lecture. Indeed, I talk about its opening as often as I can. The album Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd, yes, 1975. Also released in 1975 was Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, but that's a classic and has never dipped in popularity and respect since its release, so that doesn't count. Indeed, classical or classic music is different to most pop music in that our reception of the classical canon isn't tied to dates of composition. But, like everyone attending this lecture, I have pieces of classical music that I find more compelling than others, and it's sometimes difficult to explain why. As I mentioned in my second lecture on music in the BBC back in January, I went to my first BBC Proms concert in 1980. But I had been listening obsessively to the Proms from my home in Staffordshire for five years before that. Indeed, I started listening in 1975, my, rem my reminiscence bump year, quite fortunately, I think. And here are some of the pieces that were broadcast on Radio 3 as part of the BBC Proms in 1975. Stravinsky's The Soldier's Tale, William Walton's Facade, The Fifth Symphony of Vaughan Williams, Stravinsky's opera The Rake's Progress, Johannes Ockerhem's late 15th century motet In Temerata Dei Mater, Stravinsky's ballet The Rite of Spring, the tuneful Fifth Symphony of Schubert, and the spacious First Symphony of Sibelius, Benjamin Britten's Serenade for Tenor Horn and Strings, Beethoven's Grosse Fuga, Palestrina's double choir motet, Starbat Mater, Britain's opera, Peter Grimes, and Elgar's seminal introduction and allegro for string orchestra. Now I realise that those pieces may well feature on many people's lists of favourite music, but that all those pieces appeared in the 1975 prom season still strikes me as more than coincidental in my case. 
And for me, the intense love that I have for all those pieces of music does create a nostalgic feeling every time I hear each one of them. But that feeling of nostalgia isn't living in the past. Rather, it's my mind channeling warm emotions from the past in order to offer emotional comfort or to resolve conflict in the present. Perhaps the rawest and most self-referential nostalgia for musical performers is the knowledge that there are certain things we can no longer perform. I haven't, for instance, been able to sing the opening verse of Once in Royal David's City for getting on for 50 years. You're not allowed to do that after your voice is broken. And the nostalgia for that particular beam of Christmas limelight deepens year on year. And some years ago, I moved from violin to viola. So the violin repertory is something I'll not feel under my fingers again. And so it goes. I won't reel off all the musical things I can't do anymore. We have not willed enough and time. Sentimental remembrance of times past is nowhere made clearer than in Richard Strauss's opera Der Rosenkavalier. It's my favourite opera, and I saw it first, yes, in the mid-1970s. The tragedy in the plot of Der Rosenkavalier is that of an older woman, the Marshallin, who gives up her young lover to a younger woman, Sophie. Strauss tugs at our heartstrings in a devastatingly effective, indeed manipulative way. But there's nostalgia for the singer as well. As a young woman, a lyric soprano may sing the role of Sophie, and as an older woman, she may play the Marshallin. So not only does the character of the Marshallin hanker after the past, but the singer who plays the Marshallin may hanker after a past when she used to sing the younger role of Sophie. And so maybe nostalgia is exactly what it used to be. A bittersweet recognition of the passing of time. Sweetness, because those past times are often seen through rose-tinted spectacles, whether they were, in reality, as good as they seem now. And bitterness, because you can't live through those times again. Music is particularly good at blurring the boundaries between bitterness and sweetness. Put in musical terms, a major chord isn't always happy, and a minor chord isn't always sad. A musical dissonance isn't an unpleasant sound in and of itself. No, a dissonance is a chord that requires resolution. And nostalgia, it seems to me, is a view of the past that demands resolution in the present. Music can be a useful tool in that resolution. And nostalgia, it seems to me, is a view of the past that demands resolution in the present. Music can be a useful tool in that resolution, but musical nostalgia isn't reality, or at least it isn't objective reality. By definition, subjective reflection is the first draft of our warped nostalgic memory. So because of that, I'll carry on enjoying the music that I was fortunate enough to enjoy as a teenager, whether playing it, singing it, or listening to it. And I was extremely fortunate in my listening. Working for the BBC as I do, I know you would expect me to say this, but I'll say it anyway. Without Radio 3's live broadcasts of the proms, my reminiscence bump would be far less sophisticated than it might otherwise have been. My reminiscence bump is packed full of an astonishingly wide range of musical memories, and I'm so, so grateful for that. Indeed, thinking about it makes me rather nostalgic. Thank you. Is there something about particular chord sequences that seem to trigger emotions irrespective of a genre? I love Gresham questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are chord sequences that have been around for a very long time and that persist. I mean, I guess you could say that the whole point about tonal music, common practice music, is that it relies on um, a system of harmony and counterpoint that we still teach today. So yes, by definition, there is a way in which you can, um, and we do, we sort of load common practice music with those, those bankers, as it were, those things that can happen, the whole concept of a, a ground bass, a repeating brace, a, a, a bass, uh, the whole concept of repeating chord sequences, yeah, it goes throughout 
the whole common practice music. So yes, there is, and that is entirely irrespective of genre. And interestingly, it comes back, a lot of it, in pop music. So yes, there, there, there is a cycle of using certain chord sequences. Well, as Barry Manilow proved there, he genuinely thought he'd written a great song, and he had written a great song. It just happened <laughs> to be based on a chord sequence by Chopin. But I'm not going to criticise him for that, nor uh, would I expect him to stop at that point. Um, as I was saying earlier, uh, Stephen Fry, on an interview that I saw, he, he wrote a, a book called The Star's Tennis Balls, and he woke up halfway through the night and realised that he was rewriting The Count of Monte Cristo. And he had a choice, but he thought, no, no, The Count of Monte Cristo is a great story, so I'll carry on, in the same way Manilow carried on with his Chopin prelude. Um, so, yeah, there are, uh, and I suppose when I teach Harmony and Counterpoint, which I do, um, that's essentially what one's doing. One's focusing on the things that, you know, happen again and again and using those as, as hooks to hang composers. And I suppose going further than that, um, how do you decide if a composer is, you know, a, a valid, as it were, uh, composer, is that they're able to use the standard chord sequences but to make them their own, um, as Manolo does in his song uh, compared to uh, Chopin in his prelude, and then Rachmaninoff comes and does something entirely different. So, yeah, yeah, there is, there are those things that go through. And those are the things that I try to teach uh, in Harmony and Counterpoint. And then the students can go off and do their worst, but you know, <laughs> teach them the, the basics. First of all, I'd just like to say a huge thank you. It was a tremendous and really interesting talk. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, my question is that because you were mentioning about the peak influence being in teenage years, when I understand that the brain is, is doing some rather remarkable things, <laughs> I wondered whether there's been any neuroscience research um, to find out what's going on that makes musical influences so extraordinary during that time. Um, I, I don't know, because I don't know enough about neuroscience, obviously. But, but, but um, uh, all that I understand is that um, there is, uh, at that time, I mean, there are lots of changes going on in the, the body, as you've... Um, uh, and I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I think that what happens... Look, I, I know nothing about this subject on a technical level, but I, I think that when we listen... And please, somebody that knows, somebody, but I think when we listen to a song that we like, um, it triggers the release of dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin... There's just words to me, but I think that's good stuff. Um, so, yes, as far as I'm concerned, there, there is good stuff going on, and that, and that survives uh, in later years. But I, you'd, you'd have to ask a neuroscientist. But I imagine so. I imagine there's a, there's a very obvious link um, there. But, I mean, uh, yes, that, that's where I have to stop, because I just know what I feel, and uh, the science at the moment has surprised me in being very accurate um, about my, my own uh, adolescence, scarily so, actually. Where do you think the line is between nostalgia and influence? Because in most of the examples you put, like, um, yeah, they are they are being influenced, but I don't know how you how you distinguish between the two. Or is it all nostalgia influence, or is it just objectively like that, the copying of the past? Well, over the last um, few months, when I've been thinking about this, I've been asking exactly that question to myself, and I think what you've just outlined is exactly what I've been going through. Sometimes I thought, no, no, it's not nostalgia; it's just all influence. It's just what happens. You know, there are these standard uh, progressions, and some composers use them in some ways, and that's influence, and that's history. You know, Brahms is going to be influenced by Luther and chorales. He's going to be influenced by Beethoven. Um, uh, and, and so, yes, yeah, sometimes I think it's just influence, and then at other times I think, well, it's entirely nostalgically driven. Um, and then other times I think it's probably the answer lies about halfway between that some of it is nostalgia and some of it is cultural heritage and sometimes it's very diff difficult to tell between the two and I think we all probably find something a little bit scary about that we don't actually know if we're just being driven by this cultural influence oh I'm British so I must like Vaughan Williams and I must understand you know the sort of Gloucester Cathedral is beautiful and those rolling hills and all that so, you know is, there's that cultural uh, influence or is it the fact that there is something more nostalgic? That, that, and the answer is I, I've gone through every part of that spectrum uh, and brilliantly I've come up with absolutely no answer. <laughs> I have one more from the online audience. This might be a Gresham question. Um, <laughs> is there a place for Barber's adagio in your analysis? Um... It's, uh, it's a piece that tugs at the heartstrings. 
otherwise it wouldn't have gone through so many manifestations from you know, the small orchestral version to the large orchestral version and then to the uh, choral arrangement, which some people adore. Um, uh, there's something, isn't there? I mean, all right, let's start with it. So it starts, as soon as it starts, you know you're in for the long haul. It's a very slow piece. I mean, just as an aside, it's very difficult to conduct because it's so, so slow. Uh, but yet you have to have control. And that's the first thing. It's, it's, it's slow. It does have a meter, but it's very slowness. And you, if you really want to hear it slowly, listen to the Bernstein recording, which is fabulous, but arguably, he's my hero, but arguably it's even too slow. Um, uh, yes, I mean, th 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 that seems to me to handle, in a very obvious way, slowing the passage of time. Um, what, is it nostalgic for Barber? Well, yeah, it's very, very American. So, I mean, he's... But again, is it heritage? Is it his American heritage? And that's the kind of cause that they wrote. Or is Barber actually trying to say something about American music, which I've always sort of thought he was a bit? So, yeah, is, that's heritage and it's nostalgia, I think. But um, he, I think he goes... He, he does as much as Vaughan Williams does, for instance, uh, to make it nostalgic-sounding. I think he's deliberately trying to move us, Yeah. That's great, thank you. And thank you everyone for your questions. Um, I'm sorry, I do have to draw it to a close now, I'm afraid. Um, but thank you again, Jeremy, for a wonderful lecture. Thank you.